Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. I'm Zoe Cunningham. Today, I'm delighted to welcome John and Rob. John and Rob, can I ask you to introduce yourselves? Tell us what you do at Software and maybe also an interesting fact about yourself. Hi, so yes, I'm Jonathan Artis. I run the consulting team at Software. I've been around for about six years now, and I was the person who came up with the idea of doing Softwire's first ever real escape room. We basically demolished a meeting room, put in an escape room, and made over 100 people escape from it over the course of about a month. Amazing. And we have a whole podcast about our escape room type things that we have gone on to do since that escape room, which was amazing. So great fact, John. And hello there. My name's Rob Owen. I am a technical lead at Software. I've been working here for about three years now, and I specialize in cloud technologies and data engineering and data storage technologies more broadly. Interesting fact about myself is that in 2015, I ran a marathon through the Sahara Desert. Wow, that's hardcore. Was it really tough? I mean, obviously, it must have been really tough. It was It was, It was. was difficult and got harder because you, you start running early in the morning. And as you go longer, the longer it takes, the warmer it gets. So I was not breaking any records, but I did complete the thing. Wow, amazing. Whew. Well, in today's episode, we're going to talk about data engineering, which <laughs> now seems really easy compared to running a marathon through the Sahara. Data is a hot topic for us right now, as businesses realize that their data can hold immense value. You could be sitting on a data gold mine. So according to PwC, the world is producing about 2.5 quintillion bytes of data per day, with 90% of all data having been produced in just the last two years. So there's a lot of data and ever increasing amount of data. Technology research outfit Gartner has found that nearly 97% of data remains untouched and unused by companies. But knowing that you have data and can use it is one thing, but how do you get the best from it? And what do we mean when we talk about engineering in a data context? So I guess that is the question for our guests. What do we mean by data engineering? I think that's a good question, Zoe. And I think it's one where you'd get different answers depending on who you ask. I think the big picture is that it is about applying some structure to the way that you manage and control and hold your data in the same way that people tend to do on software projects or indeed any anything else with the word engineering in. When you build a bridge, you don't just chuck some iron girders together and hope that it holds up. You sit down and think about the structure, what the load is, what the span has to be, and you plan it all up front. And similarly with data engineering, it's about taking the kind of engineering rigor and thinking upfront about what you need to be able to do with that data, where it's going to come from, how much of it there is, and planning for that in advance so that you can then do exciting things with it, be that machine learning, be that reporting at the other end, or be it consuming consuming that data from websites or other platforms. Yes, I, I totally agree with everything John's saying there. To add my, my own spin on that, I often think that there are two halves to data engineering. There's the the technical aspect of it, how do I arrange a business's data such that it is useful to analysts for machine learning for reporting purposes, but also how can I bring correct governance to that data so that I can use it in a way that is legally correct and in agreement with the privacy policies I've set out to the users of my software and any other interests in that space. On the technical front, I often think about data engineering as removing the smell of the source from business data. And I say that coming from a software engineering background, 
Traditionally, software systems will be backed by a database, and that database will store data in a way that reflects how that software uses, creates, and updates the data. And that is exactly what a data analyst does not want to see. They don't want to look at a table of, of insurance policies or products on a website and see lots of trace details about how that data was created and managed internally by one application. So it's about taking data and abstracting it from the details of how it was made and presenting it in relevant business terms that can be aggregated with data from other sources and used to to derive additional value and insight. And I think it's a hot topic at the moment in particular because of the explosion of novel use cases like machine learning. And what we're seeing is a real explosion in the set of technologies which can be used in data engineering. We've seen that sort of stream processing like Kafka and Spark become sort of really popular for doing large-scale data. All of the main cloud platforms are releasing things quickly in this space. So AWS have just released Redshift, there's BigQuery on Google, there's Synapse on Azure, and there's a real explosion in the set of tools out there. And they're sufficiently big and complicated and sufficiently different from what's come before that it is worth specializing and focusing and really understanding what the use cases are for the new tools being developed. Mm. So so it's about the approach you take to dealing with your data. And actually, this starts before you even adopt machine learning or other processes with the data, you've got to get the data to the place where you can start using it. So what are you have to deodorize it, as Rob says. So what are the kind of common problems that you see with people's data sets? Some of the common problems we see with data sets where there hasn't been over overarching data strategy and data engineering oversight is, for example, missing fields where data just isn't present in the final output for analytics purposes, and that can be really hard to retrofit. We also sometimes see problems with data quality constraints not being enforced. And this can be really relevant, particularly with relational data models. If I've got several applications that will work with SQL databases, you might have null values in a certain column. And to take an example, perhaps I have several systems that are involved in the sale of books. And there's an author field on a book. And what does it mean to have an author that is null? Perhaps you have one system where null means we don't currently ha- have the name of that author. We haven't validated that that's the correct source. For another, it might mean that this is a collection of books and there is no single author. Those are totally valid meanings. But if you aggregated the data from those systems together and they're both called null in the end, your data analysts have no idea what you mean. So a big part of, of data engineering is about enforcing consistent data quality constraints across multiple systems as you bring their data together into into the kind of data warehouse technologies John was talking about. And I think there's also a risk with multiple sources systems in particular that terms don't have a well understood meaning. So you get fields like revenue in database where it has radically different meanings between multiple systems. And as soon as you add it together, it no longer makes sense. And a big part of the data engineering is understanding what each field in each source system actually means and making sure that you don't produce invalid results by adding the wrong things together. Mm. So if you're thinking about how to store this central data truth, I guess, what kind of features are you looking at for it to have in order you know, to kind of be an ideal way of storing it? That is an incredibly hard and complicated question to answer. And I think part (laughs) of the reason why it's inevitably gotten wrong in some axis, a big part of this depends on what questions you're going to need to ask. So we've done projects in the past where 
a surprising requirement is the ability to get a point in time view of the data. So to say not just what does the data look like now, but what did the data look like two years ago on this particular date? And that can be really important for answering business or regulatory questions. But if you don't build that kind of time facility into your database upfront, it can be incredibly hard and complicated to retrofit that later. So a lot of this is thinking about what are the sorts of questions you want to ask? Do you want to segregate by time? Do you want to segregate by geography? Do you want to be able to have kind of point in time snapshots? Those sorts of questions are really important to tease out of the anticipated use cases upfront. John, I'm glad you handled this question first, because as you say, it is it is a tricky one. I'd like to highlight some other considerations that should feed into to deciding how to store your data. And they're more on the infrastructure side. If you have a, a central source of truth about your business's data, you need to make sure it meets certain security criteria. You've got to make sure it's accessible, not just from your in-office staff, but potentially from other suppliers who you work with, you might access segments of it. You need to make sure it's scalable because, you know, Every business wants to grow and you need your data infrastructure to be capable of doing so alongside your business. And it needs to be cost effective. And this is often where we get into discussions of on-premises storage versus, for example, cloud providers. It's really interesting because I I feel like I've just realized I asked the wrong question because I was kind of saying, well, what's the ideal way to store your data? And actually, it's a bit like saying, what's the ideal employee? It depends what you want them to do, right? It's You can have some general hints, like you want them to be friendly and um, and a team player. and But actually, it's very dependent on what you use it for. So actually, should you be aiming to say, we have a, a central single truth about our data? Or is it more a case of managing multiple data systems? Like what kind of shape do you want your data in? So I think it comes down to, as you say, what are you going to do with it? We've already discussed how data engineering isn't really an end product itself. What it does is it powers data aggregation tasks such as analytics or machine learning. And if your business has a use case for that or believes you can derive particular insights from having that, then there is there is a data engineering system that needs to be in place to power that. I wouldn't generally advise doing it just for the sake of it. You, you need to know what you're trying to get out of the system because that both determines whether it's worth doing and how you would architect it. And if you, if you have no need for central analytics of your data and you're sure of that, then then I don't see an issue with not pursuing a central source of truth in your data storage. And there are definitely cases where it's not worth the effort of having a single source of truth. And when you've got well-segregated sort of business domains, you can definitely have multiple silos of your data and not pay the price. Having said that, I think the further you go and the more data you get, the harder it can be to join across. The second you ask that first question that crosses multiple data silos and you find actually you can't join the data together, that can be a really painful experience. And I know, Rob, you've just finished a project where that was really one of the root causes that got us involved. Yes. Yeah, I've just rolled off a uh, an almost typical example of, of how these problems are really hard to to address uh, retrospectively. And I think one of the issues with this particular business was that it was only once they had scaled to a certain size that they realized the value that could be drawn from connecting up all their data silos. So perhaps they did that cost analysis early on and decided it wasn't worth it, but then they grew, they're very successful, but it meant they had they had a lot of a lot of data engineering work to catch up on before they could really derive any value from their from their data. It wasn't impossible, but it was it was probably more costly than it would have been to to address early on. 
And the general problem there was that they had a, a massive silo of very rich advertising data and then a quite a complex business domain with lots of lots of venues, lots of countries, lots of cities that they wanted to do analytics at, but they had no way of joining across those silos, which when they wanted to ask really important and uh, pertinent business questions, they weren't able to do that without a lot of manual analysis. And that's that's what you often find as well, is that the way you know there's a need to join things up is where people are doing ad hoc and manual analyses. And these sort of joined up data silos are happening on a case-by-case basis, normally in Excel as well. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think if Excel's become part of a routine data transformation workflow of any scale, that's, uh, that's usually a good sign that there are efficiencies to be gained by bringing in some data engineering expertise. It's very interesting to think about this parallel with software engineering again, that actually it sounds and and the complexity of it, right? You know, you could also ask the question, well, how do you do good software engineering? And, And there are some answers, but it depends on what you want to do. And I'm really struck by this notion of just like in software engineering, right? You need to implement something well so that it scales and lasts for the long term. But you also want to implement something in an agile and flexible manner where you don't design for all kinds of cases that you don't need and will never need and actually end up, you know, hamstringing yourself in in that way. So this sounds very similar to me in terms of, yes, obviously you need your data to, if you will need to connect it in the future, you need to think about that now, but also don't just make a massive data system for the sake of it if you don't know what you're going to use it for. And I think I'd add to that another parallel between the software and data engineering side, which is that if you don't do it, if you don't implement it, it will happen anyway. And I think we've all seen businesses where they don't have a software application to do a certain thing, normally in the financial domain for some reason. But what you then find is complex spreadsheets evolve. People learn to write macros and uh, the software happens anyway. And you end up with organic free range software, which certainly hits a scalability limit and then needs some proper software engineering. And the same thing's happening in data. And if you're sitting there in your business and seeing people spend a substantial fraction of their lives bringing together and munging and joining data in Excel, that is normally a smell that you need to have a think about, could you do it better? Mm. Yes, I think there's a parallel to be drawn between the two. The skill sets involved, the way of thinking about problems and the solution to those problems are very similar. I think you can you can think of data engineering as being where software engineering was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. I, I think that's a reasonable parallel in terms of ways of working at the at a high level. Okay, so if you've got some data you're almost definitely going to need to change it. (laughs) However, you also have systems running off it already. So how do you go about improving your data storage and your data modeling when there will be dependencies on that data already? So this is one of those areas where the answer already exists in software engineering. There are two, two aspects. This one is testing. The second is defining interfaces between your data system and source or client applications. So in the world of software engineering, you define an interface of your application and you say, great, I can change anything inside that interface. That's internal. That's okay. As long as the external behavior is unchanged, it's fine. And you have a very different process if you're changing the behavior for a client. And then you might look at things like different schema versioning, different API versions is something you'll see commonly in the world of software engineering. And the same thing can be applied to to data engineering. 
But I think it being a newer field and with the explosion of technologies and tools and techniques, a lot of this is still up for grabs. And like Rob says, I think it's a bit behind software engineering in having well-trodden paths that we know to be successful. I think there are some very well-defined software architectures like classic three-tier, which people know how to build and they they solve the problem well. I think data engineering is still a bit more of a, of a bleeding edge discipline. And people have evolved those over, you know, tens of years of software engineering, right? It's not like someone could just think about the problem and you immediately know the answer. You learn by working with it and coming up with new models and new paradigms of how to solve these challenges that we're talking about. And I think I think the explosion in data engineering has been driven by a few different things. One is that storage has gotten really fast and also really cheap, and it's suddenly become viable to collect huge amounts of data and store it and actually access it at a sensible speed. You're not having to ship things off to tape when it gets too big like, like you did back in the day. But I think also the explosion in web scale companies, so companies with tens or hundreds of millions of customers, has meant that people want to be collecting and analysing data across at that scale. And that, that, again, that wasn't the case 10 years ago. If, if you think that 10 years ago, we didn't really have a Netflix. This is a new thing. Data at this scale is a new thing. And it's, it's still a case that, that brilliant engineers at companies like Netflix and Amazon are solving these problems from first principles and what they are building starting to kind of trickle out into the wider development ecosystem. But there's another side to the discussion, and that is the, the regulatory and governance landscape in which you are, you are handling your data. So, for example, we are we're in the UK and we have the European GDPR regulations in place and similar legislation exists across much of the world and is continually drafted and used as an example for new privacy laws. And you need sensible change control processes to make sure you're adhering to those regulations and any other privacy policies you may have while also being able to distribute the data from your, your central data store in a controlled manner to approved users. That, again, is driven by uh, the fact that data is now so massively valuable. Obviously, regulators have now realised that it's something that needs to be protected and that users should be protected from unscrupulous users of that data. But it does present huge engineering challenges. So the GDPR, for example, gives you the right to have your data removed or anonymised in business systems. And if that is 10 separate applications with loads of spaghetti and Excel together, actually removing or anonymizing someone's data is really hard and it's really difficult to prove that you've done it right as well or indeed to service requests for for disclosure of the data that a company holds and proper data engineering approaches also make those sorts of challenges much easier to overcome. Mm. So what we're really talking about here is kind of having governance so what kind of governance practices do you need around you know managing data in general? It's a really key area because I think people are increasingly appreciating their right to privacy in terms of data. And I think I think 10, 15 years ago, this was not a consideration. But now people do have a reasonable expectation that their data won't be used beyond the purpose for which it was provided and that the personal and sensitive data must be well protected and any breaches or, or errors around that are disclosed and properly properly dealt with. We're doing a few interesting bits of work at the moment with Moorfield Eye Hospital on systems that use patient data and the governance processes around patient data in the NHS and with the researchers that we're working with are extremely tight and there are a very stringent set of controls to make sure that anything is fully de-identified before it is shared with researchers. And that's one where we have data lineage in place. 
So that means that the data warehouse that we have built with the whole patient data, we can trace back to where every bit of data in that has come from. So what that means is that we've got quite carefully segregated databases for patient data and anonymized data, and we've got a stringent set of controls about what data can flow between those and quite detailed policies that we have uh, signed off with the NHS Information Governance Controller to ensure that we've done absolutely everything necessary to make sure we're protecting patient data there. I think that's a really neat example of how even in the most regulated and rightly so environments where where patient confidentiality and privacy are hugely important you can still do really interesting work with data provided the proper protocols and processes are in place right and are there any other examples of what you need for good governance i think traceability is the big one and i think Anything that you're doing that is driving decisions or anything that you're publishing, if somebody questions a number, being able to say where that number comes from is really key. And we've seen this over the past few months with the the global handling of the COVID pandemic, that actually a lot of numbers get published, which journalists or fact checkers will dig into and find that there's very little justification and that actually people can't explain where that number has come from. And you see government statistical departments under a lot of pressure to produce figures, but it is also important to be able to trace right back to the source data and say, well, this is how we derive those numbers. And I think I think the global reliance on high quality data in tackling the current pandemic really shines a light on why that's important and why actually being able to trust data and trust where it's come from is key in shaping policy. Yeah, data provenance is is a huge aspect of maintaining and being able to prove data quality. It also cuts across into the governance concerns. Uh, For example, the Moorfields work John talked about. For example, if you need to delete data from a certain user, well, that user might have entered data across dozens of different systems that you've aggregated data from. Or perhaps you are retaining data from one specific system, but removing it if it has been sourced from others. That kind of selective trimming of your data is impossible without appropriate data lineage. And on the technical front, there are there are other concerns. Imagine you have so three or four systems all pulling data into the same warehouse. What if you, you, you might discover that actually in for three months of last year, there was a data quality problem in one of the source systems that had since been corrected, but you'd like to go in and adjust the historical data you're currently storing so that it reflects what you now understand to be truth. In that case, you need to know about the date range of the data you're sourcing and which system it came from. So provenance and time control can be very important in, in those kind of regards. And so if I have got my my data system, I'm like, oh, actually, I don't know if I have got good provenance on this data. What can I do about it? So the first step is to really dig into how that data got into into place where it is now and you'll be able to evaluate what your current processes are and are not giving you and if that is not adequate then you need to be looking at some kind of change process as we discussed previously on how to expand your data pipelines because that's a missing field which is one of the the first problems i flagged in the sort of common problems section we we talked about earlier i i'd add to that that it, it doesn't necessarily have to be complicated i think the principles behind data provenance and traceability can be applied to good old excel spreadsheets as long as you're keeping copies and you know that for a particular published set of numbers you have got the set of spreadsheets that we use to derive those then that's actually absolutely fine it doesn't 
have to be complex. It's where you are modifying spreadsheets over time. It's where the same ones get used sort of cycle after cycle for your financial reporting. That's where it gets problematic. So a lot of this is around discipline and making sure that you have rubber stamped the version that was used for a purpose and can go back to it. Mm. And essentially, this is super important because what we're saying is if you have a data set that doesn't include information on the provenance, that data set could just be totally useless to you. You may need to go and recreate all of that data, either validate line by line or go and recreate all of that data again. So it's super important to think about it at the start. That situation is is kind of the worst of both worlds. You, you don't even know that the data is necessarily to be discarded and ignored. It might be really insightful, but you have no way of being sure. And that's what we try to avoid when doing uh, data engineering work. Absolutely. And I think the other nightmare scenario that I've seen a number of times is where you try to recreate a set of figures and actually find that you can't. And what that's typically caused by is where you found that people have made manual adjustments, where people have overtyped, where people have actually brought in versions which have since been overwritten, and you can just completely lose the history. And that can be a real problem, particularly in regulated industries like financial services, where you've got things like the Sarbanes-Oxley Act that re- require you to have traceability of data. Right, or a problem for anyone if you're trying to extract, you know, insights that are true <laughs> and not More misleading. generally. <laughs> we didn't explicitly discuss it earlier, but I think one of the, the core considerations when architecting a, a data platform is, is is making sure that your data is immutable. It could be updated, but not overridden. That kind of consideration generally makes it far easier to reconstruct point in time snapshots or analyses at a later date. Mm, fantastic. Thank you both so much. I hope we have provided you some tips that can help you find some nuggets of gold in your data mine. So yes, thanks again to John and Rob and join us next time on Software Tech Talks.